So today we are going to cover, as they might say in Boston, the resta esta. I was so proud of that. You know, you could be nicer sometimes, you people. Speaking of which, uh, this past Thursday, there was a holiday, March 17th. I don't know if any of you took part in any of those celebrations. Who did? Raise your hand if you took a little part in that little, oh wow, not many. Not many at all, okay. Well, that doesn't surprise me. This is a significant holiday really for people who have a particular cultural background and maybe a particular genealogy. But you know, you've seen the, the big celebrations and parades that take place. Uh, you know that uh, on this holiday, men are encouraged to drink alcohol, uh, and most of them need little encouragement who are taking part. People share in communal feasts with friends and family. There's the exchanging of gifts. Food is given to the poor. And there are eating of particular foods that are reserved only for that day for many people. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Haman's ears, Haman's pockets, which are filled pastries, of course. There's also the public reading or reciting of the scroll of Esther. Children will blot out the name of Haman during the reading of this scroll using a grogger, which is a small wooden ratchet instrument that makes a loud noise. And people wear masks and costumes. There's several ideas of where this came from, but the idea now is that it commemorates how God disguised himself even as he was at work throughout this book where his name is never mentioned once. And the holiday I'm talking, of course, is Purim. Yeah, Purim was this past Thursday. It doesn't always coincide with other holidays, but sometimes it does. It was this past Wednesday and Thursday, actually. And if you're wondering how it's two days, just read the last chapter of the book of Esther. Now, we've been at this now. This is the 16th week. I actually started this back in October, and you might be thinking, wow, Pastor Zach, you're quite a good planner. Did you actually plan it so the book that's written about how the holiday of Purim came to be came to an end, the study came to an end on that same week? And the answer is, let's say, sure, yeah. No, I didn't. I totally didn't realize until a couple weeks ago it was going to play out this way. And I thought, how fitting that a book that's full of providential timing and God coming in with the surprise to save the day would even in his providence do something like this where uh, we align our study of Purim and this final uh, institution of Purim that we read about here at the end of the book with the actual holiday itself this past week. Here the, the book uh, or the holiday or the Tov Yom, the good day of Purim, is instituted uh, officially as an actual Persian festival observed by all of the uh, Jewish people throughout the land. And the idea is that wherever they are, even if, they're, if they've gone back to Jerusalem, they're in Judea, if they're scattered throughout the Persian Empire, all will observe these days to remember what God has done. It's what we call a minor festival. It's not one of the seven big ones that's instituted by God in the Mosaic books. But Jesus celebrates it. I'm not sure if you realize that in the Gospels. In John 10, we see Jesus celebrating Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, which is also a minor festival. And then in John 5, which Dave read, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the feast. And when you start going through uh, the context and the, the narrative there, it's clear that the only feast it could possibly be is the Feast of Purim. And Jesus takes part in it. 
So it's something that we need to study. A whole book of the Bible is uh, dedicated to it. As Christians, we're not obligated to in any way celebrate it or observe it. One might for fun. We might for fun sometime uh, and, and for a sense of connection to what God had done in the past. But certainly, whether or not we observe the days themselves, there is truth here for us that can be applied to our lives. Real brief, brief background, and again, after... 15 messages, I can't sum everything up, and 10 chapters of the book. Suffice to say, the Prime Minister Haman, second in command over all of Persia under King Ahasuerus, based on a petty beef with this guy Mordecai, who was a Jew, and driven by an ages-old clan feud between his clan, the Agagites, and Mordecai's clan, the Kishites, devised a plan to destroy all the Jewish people in the land and then manipulated the king, Ahasuerus, into rubber-stamping it. This is the story of how Queen Esther, with the help of her uh, cousin-slash-adopted father, Mordecai, saves the day by going to the king, exposing Haman, and appealing to the king, and getting a, a second edict, which allows them to defend themselves, saves their lives, and even actually puts them in a better position than they were in to begin with. So, of course, it's a time of celebrating. Mordecai then writes letters here in this text, and he writes them obligating all the Jews to celebrate these days before the Lord as an annual feast of remembrance that not only will they keep them who remember these things, but they'll teach their children and their children will keep these things and their children's children that this will be a perpetual remembrance through the ages. The summary statement in verse 30 says, Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring. So this is a big deal. This is something that is going to reverberate through history and is going to call attention to something that God was doing even when it seemed like he had taken the day off. They don't mention the name of God throughout this book, not because it's not about God, but because it seems to the people like God was not there. They'd been praying and God didn't answer their prayers. They'd, they'd been thinking, how is it that God sent us into exile? The time has come and gone and I'm still here. Yes, some people have gone back. Some have been able to do it. I've not been able to do it. God, where are you? And then, as always is the case, in retrospect, they see, oh, he was there the whole time. He was at work the whole time. And so we don't forget, next time we feel this way, every single year, we're going to commemorate this great event. We see this then that Mordecai writes a letter, then he writes a second letter, and they go out via the Persian post. I described to you a couple times just how insanely efficient their postal service was. I'm not going to compare it to ours or anything, but it was great. Uh, and then Esther herself, starting in verse 29, also seems to write a letter confirming this. And, and some have suggested that this suggests here that Mordecai wrote the book of Esther. It says he wrote down all these things. Maybe it does point us in that direction or hint in that direction. We don't know. Others have suggested that he and Esther both writing down these events in letters. Maybe they co-wrote the book. Doesn't seem completely out of the possibility to me, but we don't know for certain. We do know, though, that they wanted the people to remember. They were worried that the people would forget. In fact, Esther adds something here in her letter that they would not forget the, quote, times of fasting and lamentation. 
See, this holiday of Purim is the most rejoicing, celebratory, happy festival in the Jewish calendar. It is nothing but fun and games and masks and food and drink and all sorts of exciting stuff. And yet, she says, don't forget, it comes out of this time of fasting and lamentation. It isn't in a vacuum. I think this flies in the face of our modern Western tendency to wash pain and suffering out of our worship. I think there will be a lot more people here on Easter morning to talk about the resurrection of Jesus than there will be here even with three or four congregations to celebrate or observe, I'll say celebrate, the death of Jesus for our sins. We boast in the death of Christ, but we don't want to think about it too much. We don't want to get sad. That's not how you bring people in. That's not how you put people in pews, right? Well, I think we miss out on something, and so does Esther, if we forget the minor key, if we play the happy music so loud it drowns it out. Of course, this makes me think of the McDLT, the sandwich McDonald's came out with in the 80s. Do you remember this? Do you remember the commercials? Do you remember that it was Jason Alexander? A skinny George Costanza with all his hair, a glorious head of hair, singing about the McDLT, the best lettuce and tomato burger to ever exist. And the, the gimmick here was, it came in an absolute ecological nightmare of a package. It was a, a two-chambered styrofoam package. On one side was a bun, a burger, and some cheese all melted together and it stayed hot. On the other side was the other bun, a slice of tomato, and some crunchy lettuce. And you'd get it like that, cold on one side, hot on the other. You'd open it up, and just before you eat it, you'd smash them together, and the lettuce is still crunchy. It's not wilty. The tomato's still a different, kind of white pink because it's McDonald's. But you have this idea of a hot and cold together sandwich rather than what you'd normally get, which is it sits on the counter for a while and you take your fast food hamburger and it's tepid. The cold stuff has gotten a little warmer, the hot stuff has gotten a little cooler, and the whole thing's just kind of gross. That was the idea. Jesus also says in Revelation 3, I don't want something lukewarm. Be hot or be cold. If you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I think what tends to happen when we take the, the pain, the suffering, the, the bad things going on in the world, the, the minor key aspects of our faith, the, the troubles that God's people have been through or are even going through right now, and we kind of overwhelm them and, and give them a brief moment of acknowledgement and then just immediately rush into the happy stuff. We say, okay, yeah, Good Friday, right, and then run right to Easter morning, is that the hot and the cold kind of just become tepid together, and you don't get the full experience. It's, it's been said that the pain and the praise actually aid one another, that without the praise, the pain is uh, it's unbearable. But without acknowledging the pain and how God has been with us through difficult times and trials and struggles, our praise rings hollow. And that's what Esther, I think, is saying here. She says, do not forget in your celebrations the times of fasting and lament. Believing through times of trial or crisis is what develops our faith. We certainly see that as Paul goes through this progression 
of endurance brings this, brings this, brings this. You remember that passage? Or, or, or this one, Isaiah 43, 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes, way in the, uh, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, they might declare my praise. Now when he says, remember not the former things, and we stop and say, wait a minute, the entire Old Testament economy is built on remembering what came before, right? What's going on here? The whole, every time God mentions who he is, he's like, I'm the Lord your God, as if his last name is, who brought you out of Egypt? He points them to their deliverance. He points them back to remember in all of these seven great mosaic uh, uh, holidays, which we're going to run through in a minute, all of them point backwards to things that God has done, mighty things in their past, faithful things in their past, how even when they were faithless, they were faithful. He says, just like we said last week, don't lose your momentum, looking back and focusing on those things, acknowledge them, and then in the spirit of Purim, look forward to a God who can and has and will deliver you. And all of this then is to be commemorated. You know, the Gospel of John famously ends after the resurrection with a description of why he wrote the book. He says, all the things Jesus did wouldn't fit in all the books of the world. If you wrote them down, the world itself wouldn't contain all the books. I write these things so that you will believe, and in believing, you will have eternal life. Well, the book of Esther also kind of ends in the same way. This book is written so the people would remember God's grace and his deliverance and would rejoice. We've said again and again that this book is full of divine reversals. Things appear to be going one way and then they go the absolute opposite way. It looks like, uh, it looks like Haman's going to be honored and then suddenly his enemy Mordecai is honored instead. It looks like Mordecai is going to be hung on those gallows instead Haman is hung on his own gallows. Well, here we see the ultimate divine reversal where it looked like the enemies of God's people would surround them and destroy them, and instead the opposite happened, and so they together celebrate. Note a couple things. First of all, what is celebrated is not the fighting or the killing, but the end of the fighting, the rest that they had, the peace that they had. Queen Esther and Mordecai issue edicts making this celebration permanent because now they have the rest. Now is the time to celebrate. You don't celebrate before the job is done. Secondly, they, they give gifts to the poor. And it, that might seem random, like, okay, I'm really happy and I want to do something good, so I'll give gifts to the poor. But it's not as random as it seems, because this is all undoing Haman's edict of death, which specifically said, from the least to the greatest, everybody, rich and poor, young and old, is, is fair game and is to be put to death on this particular day. The day that they're now celebrating is a day of deliverance. And now instead, those who have give gifts to those who not, and everyone from the least to the greatest is, has a reason to celebrate on this day, or these two days of Purim. The ultimate divine reversal takes place, though, for Christians. Not for the Jews under Esther, not for Israel under Moses. All of these things in the Old Testament are foreshadowing pointing forward to the cross of Jesus. And by the way, everything after the Gospels in the New Testament is pointing back to the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb. 
And so for us, when we commemorate God's great work amongst us, his grace, his deliverance, we are pointing to that one thing. It's actually kind of odd and macabre when you think about the fact that churches everywhere are adorned with crosses, right? Can you imagine if someone was wearing an electric chair around their neck? You'd think they were nuts. You would not go near that person. You'd say, that guy's got some dark stuff. I, I don't want to be around. But a cross is also an instrument of execution because it's the greatest reversal that ever took place. By this instrument of death comes our life. And we, like those people in Israel who had a tendency to forget, have a tendency to forget that as well. That is why we gather together week after week on the Lord's Day. Martin Luther was asked, why do you always preach the gospel? He said, because every week you always forget it, as do I. That's what we do. We forget, and so we need to hear it. We need to read it. We need to remember it again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, notice there's a tendency to, to set up Ebenezer's or, or, or Cairns. It's like bagel. I have a hard time pronouncing that word correctly. Cairns? Cairns. You know, piles of rocks. When we're at like Mackinac Island or somewhere beautiful up north, and people have just piled up a bunch of rocks randomly... My wife gets mad and knocks them down. I can tell Dave does as well. Yeah, it ruins pictures you want to take. It ruins the beauty of it. And, and it would completely uh, kind of obscure any meaningful pile of rocks that had been set up. And in the Old Testament, it's not just random. They're not like, well, we're wandering in the desert for 40 years. You know what I do? I pass the time by piling rocks. No, they do it for a particular thing, a monument. And, you know, we look at Joshua 4 after they'd crossed the Jordan. They don't just cross the Nile on dry land. Remember, they also cross the Jordan. The priests carrying the ark walk in, and as soon as they start to walk in, the waters, it says, begin to pile up. They all cross over, and while the waters are piled up, they set up 12 stones for the 12 tribes. And then when they walk out in the middle of this river are these 12 stones, and they're told, now when your kids ask you, what are these stones here for? Tell them this story. It's a reminder. In Joshua 24, there's a standing stone in Shechem to mark a great victory. In 1 Samuel 7, after defeating the Philistines, Samuel sets up an Ebenezer. That means a, a stone of help. God has helped, he says. And there is this stone, this memorial, this monument. We need to do this today as well. You could do this in your yard with stones, I suppose. Aaron or Dave might come along and knock them down, but you could set up stones to remind you of different things that God has done in your life when you felt like he was not present. And when you wrote the story of that chapter of your life, God's name wouldn't come up once, just like in the book of Esther, because you felt like he wasn't there. And now you look back and say, wow, God was faithful. You could, you could put up, that would be actually kind of a really cool thing to do. Or you could journal about it and write down in a journal every time God is faithful Every time you felt like you'd been abandoned and then you recognized that God is there with you, holding you up, giving you life, comforting you in your sorrow, bearing your grief with you, taking your heavy yoke and giving you one that is easy and light. And when you were struggling once again, you could go back and read through these things. Sunday itself, the Lord's Day, is in a sense an Ebenezer, a reminder of what God has done. Why is it Sunday that we meet? In the Old Testament, remember, it's the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday. Christians today, the vast majority, worship on the Lord's Day, Sunday, the first day of the week. Why? Anybody? Shout it out. That's right. Beautiful. It's when Christ rose. If you're listening on the thing, it was my wife, not just some random person. 
Yeah, that's when Christ rose from the dead. Why? Why do we come together that day? To commemorate that, right? A perpetual remembrance always, always that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death and bore my shame and my guilt and taken my sin. He's thrown as far as the east is from the west, cast them into the depths of the sea. That is worth commemorating if anything is. Notice that we're in the season of Lent. 40 days, right? Do the math. The Sundays don't count. The Sundays aren't part of those 40 days. That's not part of Lent. Why? Each one, all year long, it's an Easter, a mini Easter. When we get to Easter itself, yeah, it's going to be a bigger celebration just because, because we can, because why wouldn't we once a year? But every time we gather together, we are commemorating the fact that our Lord Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So, you know, this book begins and ends with people announcing these things. This book ends here. It begins and ends with letters of decree going out to the ends of the earth. It begins and ends with a feast. But they're very different. And so we want to remember how our, our Lord, when we look back at our life, we say, you know, there, there's, there's things that have happened, and I felt like I was more in chapter 1 of Esther, not at the end when the good letters were going out, but at the beginning when the, when the difficult letters and the horrifying letters and the letters that came out of pettiness and jealousy were going out. Remember that our God is still God and is still on the throne. This could also take the form of something as simple as a sticky note on your steering wheel with a verse on it to remind you in the beginning of the day or on your, on your mirror in your bathroom that God is faithful. He has been there for you in the past and will be there for you every step along the way. Stop and remember the gifts. Maybe an alarm on your phone. When do you tend to get most discouraged? That's maybe a good time to set an alarm. And when it pops up, there's some scripture. There's a reminder there's a prayer to pray or a reminder just to bring your, take all the accrued worries of the day and stresses of the day and take a moment to cast them upon his shoulders. Cast your cares upon him for he cares for you. Why don't we suppose the early church going all the way back to the third or maybe second century built the church calendar around a holy week? A time to specifically stop and remember what Jesus endured on our behalf. It's because of all the times God's people forgot God's goodness. And how we are going forward going to do the same thing. And it's, it's very dangerous to be in the position of forgetting what God has done. We could literally start at the beginning of the Bible and walk through the whole Old Testament and the New just marking it by times that people have forgotten God's goodness and strayed. That's kind of an overarching theme of his word. I'll point just to a couple of verses. Deuteronomy 6.12, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Or Psalm 106, They made a calf in Horeb, remember that, the golden calf? And worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Remember in Jesus' ministry, after Jesus had fed 5,000 men plus women and children and shown himself to be the God of everything, right? You just give me these five loaves, two fish, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. If there was ever a time when fresh on their minds should have been we're following the Lord himself, it was then. 
That very night, he said, you go ahead to the other side, get in the boat, cross over, I'll meet you later, I'm going to pray. Jesus thought it was worth his time to go and pray. Maybe we should as well. As they went out, a storm came. And their first thought was, oh, we're definitely going to die. They didn't remember that Jesus, who's with them, Jesus, who's watching over them, is that powerful. Then he comes to them walking on the water. And they say, oh, this is weird. must be a ghost. Still, we're going to die. They didn't remember. we got to be careful not to forget God's faithfulness. There's an obligation here, I think. I don't think I know. The word obligates used four times in this little passage. Esther and Mordecai obligate the people near and far to keep this day of remembrance. The people obligate themselves. And I think we freak out every time there's something that starts to go awry every time I start to feel like things are spinning out of my control and I can't keep them within my hands and, and my oversight because I haven't erected enough memorials, enough Ebenezer's to remind me what God has done before. That's the prophetic principle of the scriptures, by the way. What God has done before, he will do again. He was faithful before, he'll be faithful again. He disciplined those who he loved and who turned away from him before, he'll do it again. He was a, a God of love and mercy before. He is a God of love and mercy now and will be forever. I think often spiritual backsliding as well, at least on one level, is almost always the result of forgetting. We forget who God is and what he's done for us, what he's doing in us, and think instead about the pleasures of the flesh or the worries of this world or whatever and begin to turn away from him a degree at a time. Remembering is the solution to so very many spiritual problems. I once heard a preacher tell his people to read, remember, rejoice, repeat. You know, I often think I don't use alliteration because it doesn't work, but I remember that, and that was probably 20 years ago. But you know what? I might add repent in the mix there too. We read, we remember, we rejoice that God has done these things for us, we repent of how we have forgotten and not lived in light of them. We repeat. Open the word again tomorrow. Be encouraged again tomorrow. Be equipped again tomorrow as we continue to draw closer and closer to him. There's also an element of needing to be careful here, though. I think there's a warning even built into the celebration. Notice that a second letter comes from Mordecai. Some have thought, well, maybe that's because the first letter went out and they said, nah, I don't feel like doing that. Really, they don't feel like having a day off and celebrating. No, the second letter seems to be, remember the story itself. Because in the second letter, he lays out the story, summarizes it. This isn't just a general day for you to merrymake and forget your troubles. It's a day to remember what God has done. And with almost every single celebration that begins with a religious truth or an act of God in the past, we have tended to strip it of the meaning and turn it just into another excuse for merrymaking. Do we not? I mean, even something that's not near the core of the Christian faith, but like St. Patrick's Day, which maybe you thought I was talking about earlier because I was being clever, it, it, it's something that's now been stripped of the gospel, which was the core of who St. Patrick was and what he lived his life for and what was being commemorated, and now it becomes drink, 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 party, celebrate, laugh, and forget your troubles. Not remember anything particularly. Well, this happens also with the, the uh, celebration of Purim. In fact, it, it becomes encoded in it. 
Centuries later, after this, many centuries, rabbis would write down that men should drink on that day until they can no longer distinguish between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. Not too different from pitchers and pitchers of green beer, I guess. And, and yet, those two phrases are very different, and they're just as different in the Hebrew as they sound in the English. We need to be careful. We need to be careful with Easter and what we do with these things. That they don't just become generic days to say, ah, it's lovely outside, everyone's wearing their nicest clothes, and I get to eat lots of ham. These are gifts from God that are good. Thank you, Lord. And yet they're not the point of these things. We've been reading this morning, uh, we're reading in in our Sunday school class this morning about uh, the Lord's Supper and how in Corinth there was a tendency for even that most holy sacrament to become just an excuse to drink until they got drunk and for people to gather together and have a, a nice meal together and forget their troubles once again. And Paul comes roaring in and saying, oh yeah, enjoy eating and drinking damnation unto yourself. Things that are supposed to point us to Jesus, to the cross, often point us into ourselves when we stop remembering, when we forget. I think even back to the bronze snake in the wilderness. Jesus said, just like in the Old Testament, there was that day when the fiery serpents came into the camp because all the people were grumbling and began biting people and injecting venom and people were dying. And so God commanded Moses, make a tall pole with a bronze serpent at the top. Hold it up in the midst of the camp. And when people are bit, if they look at it, miraculously, they won't die. The venom that's been injected into them and is coursing through their veins won't kill them. Jesus said, that was pointing to me. It's not hard to see. He said, just as that snake was lifted up in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and will draw all men to himself. I will be lifted up and a look to me will cleanse you of your sins and the venom coursing through your veins will not destroy you. What a beautiful thing. And yet, we continue to read through the Old Testament, different kings coming and going, different ages of falling away and revival. And at one point, a holy and righteous king, Hezekiah, destroys that snake, breaks it into pieces because the people were worshiping it and bringing offerings to it as an idol. They called it Nehushtan, which sounds really spooky and mysterious, but just means piece of brass. Oh, I'm going to go worship piece of brass. It's supposed to point to Jesus. Sunday morning, gathering of the church, it's supposed to point to Jesus. The temptation in every church everywhere is to say, no, let's let it point to yourself. You know, we could probably get twice as many people in here if we focus more on ourselves and it was pep talks about look good, feel good. You know, love, you know, live every day like it was uh, Friday or whatever the case. It's supposed to point to Jesus. Don't forget, Esther says, the lamentation and fasting. Don't forget Jesus' suffering and death on the cross as well as his resurrection and the new life that we have in him. So again, this book began with thoroughly heathen banquets where the king celebrated his own greatness and ultimately cast his own wife aside, sent her into exile when she wouldn't get on board with that agenda. The book ends with a godly feast celebrating God's great deliverance and his faithfulness in caring for and protecting his people even while they remain in exile. And I think that's a good place to leave our study of this book. That these letters go out to the end of the empire, some of them going as far as 2,000 miles 
Near and far is the language here. Send out letters near and far. That calls to mind Isaiah 57. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. Their great enemy had been defeated. We read in verse 27. And there we see that it's not just them who are going to Uh, celebrate. It's not just their descendants who are going to observe these days, but others also will join them. That happens when we commemorate Jesus Christ as well. People will come and join you when you truly live your life as a celebration of who Jesus is and what he's done. When you truly remember and acknowledge with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and God has raised him from the dead. When you truly proclaim the gospel To those who are far off, God will draw them near. And in this book, he uses two very flawed, imperfect people to deliver Israel. This is his exact style. And in using them, he transforms them. So that in stark contrast to Ahasuerus in chapter 1, we see Esther and Mordecai in the final verses of Esther using all their power and wealth and might for what? Helping the people. Aiding the people. That's amazing to me. Their their influence and their glory, everyone, when they get it, they say, oh, look, I must have earned this. This must just be how great I am. Let me bask in it for a moment. Not these two. They use it so that they can help those in need, particularly those who are of Israel. And then, of course, we don't end with Ahasuerus dead or somehow deposed or dethroned if it was a Disney movie. Now, if it was an older Disney movie, it would end like that. He'd fall off something high. A more recent one, he would, he'd come around like this. But what we see is that this guy has changed a bit. God has been working through this wicked king. He has been, as we read in 1 Corinthians 7, sanctifying Esther's husband through Esther herself. And now he has gotten rid of his wicked advisors and yes-men and drinking buddies who used to tell him how to live and how to rule and instead has replaced them with this man, Mordecai, who is godly and honorable. And speaking of Mordecai, we end the whole book with just a summary of his greatness. Power had corrupted Haman, but Esther and Mordecai are humbled by their promotion and they feel the great responsibility of stewardship to use it in such a time as this for his glory and the good of his people. Look, look at how Mordecai goes from telling Esther, don't tell anyone you're Jewish, that's dangerous, to in the last few verses of this book, this is how he's described. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. How fitting then that at Purim they helped the poor. This is a little Mordecai-Esther move. I have something that can help someone who's in a a difficult situation. I am going to do that. I am going to help them. And I think that that story that that Dave read uh, of Jesus in, in in John 5, rather, going to Jerusalem for the feast, which, yes, I, I think I can defend, it was certainly Purim, and then going to the pool of Bethesda, and there he heals someone. I think, well, he's probably doing this in honor of Purim. Yes, Jesus healed people all the time, but if he's there on that day and says, what do I have to give? It must have been in the back of his mind. 
Some people are off giving a few coins over here. Some people maybe are bringing food to a neighbor who is hungry or going and helping with housework with someone. I'm going to go to that pool where people wait for the water to be stirred up and then go in and hope they'll be healed. And I am going to give someone back his life. This is the example we have of Jesus. And again, it is given to those people who were in exile. That is so significant. They were presently in exile. You know, this this holiday is different from all the others. The big seven that we find in the Old Testament, they all have to do with the land. Being in the land or heading to the land. Every one of them. It starts with leaving bondage in, in Egypt in a foreign land and returning, no longer being away from where God had intended them to be. And traveling from Egypt to the Promised Land. That's Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. All of those are about leaving Egypt and going to the Promised Land. Then there are those that are about providing for them through the land, through the earth. The Feast of First Fruits, Pentecost, and Trumpets. Then there are those that are tied to the temple, or particularly one to the atonement received by the sacrificial system. That's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Even the other major minor, if you will, festival, that of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is about kind of restoring and restarting worship in the temple. But here we have this beautiful holy day, this Yom Tov, this good day, or two days even. It's a twofer where they can celebrate God's goodness, His deliverance, His being with them, even when they're nowhere near the land. Why is that so fitting for us as Christians? Because as Peter tells us, we are strangers and sojourners here. We have not yet reached the promised land. And yet still we are to work for the good of the city where we are, for in its good we find our good. Still we are to be stewards of all that we have. In such a time as this, in any time, still we are meant to, to reach out to those who are hurting and poor and give them temporal help and point them to the God who loves them wherever they might be. The land, the temple, the priesthood, they're all central to the worship, to the way of life in Israel, to their very identity. But in exile, they had access to none of these things. And I remember Psalm 137.4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we do it? Well, here, this may be answered. God brought relief, verse 22, and turned their sorrow to joy. Ibid, even while they remained strangers and sojourners in a strange land. And he does the same for us. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In a book chock full of irony, even the name Purim is perhaps ironic. People have struggled with why would they name the holiday Purim? It means lots. Okay, like like dice, like lots. You cast lots. It also means like your lot your lot in life, or your allotment, what part of land you get when you inherit the the promised land. But what does that have to do with what happened? It's such a minor part. It's such a minor thing that Haman took these lots, cast these lots before his God, and said, that's the day that I want them all to die. And then God takes that day and uses it to deliver them and give them life and relieve them of their suffering and give them rest. 
I think what we're seeing by the naming of this, this festival, Purim, is a kind of tongue-in-cheek reminder, a remembering that the lot of God's people will not be determined by their enemy or by our enemy or by chance or even by circumstance. God alone determines the lot, the destiny of his people. And of course, all of these things, as we've said each and every week, point us forward to Christ. If you're reading the Old Testament and you go, wow, that didn't point me forward to Christ, read it again, you're doing it wrong. Less than 10 years after these words were written down or after these events happened, King Ahasuerus was assassinated. We have no idea what happened after that with Esther and Mordecai. But we know that what Mordecai did for less than a decade on behalf of Israel and what Esther did at his side, Jesus Christ will do for all eternity as the Prince of Peace, our advocate at the right hand of the Father, making intercession even now. When Jesus was on the cross, as we're going to talk about on Good Friday, yes, he said, it is finished. What was finished was his work for us of suffering, of bearing our sins, of of justification. But his work for us on our behalf is not done. He still, even now, is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, presenting us before the Father cleansed, hearing our prayers and presenting them as well. Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ is forever our Prince of Peace. He's greater than anyone who came before Him. In Matthew 12, He says, one greater than Solomon is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. One greater than the temple is here. He could have added one greater than Mordecai or Esther is here. And we commemorate His greatness and His mercy and His kindness and also His fasting and lamenting every time we gather together. And as we look forward to a great celebration on Easter morning, let us recommit ourselves during this Lent never to forget. You know, we say that about things that have happened in this world, things that we don't want to lose, events that happened, whether good or bad. Never forget. Never forget that. You put on a t-shirt, put on a poster, you emblazon it over your profile picture or something. This ought to be our constant refrain when it comes to who Jesus is. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and the cross. And yet, every time I tell it, it seems so wonderfully new. Every time I remember it, I remember what Jesus did for me. I remember, yes, I can celebrate, not in general, not to forget my troubles, but to remember what Jesus has done. And when I am in the midst of the valley of the shadow of doubt, I can remember that last time I was here, he was faithful. That when those people in Persia felt like God had abandoned them, He was faithful. That when the Jews in Egypt felt like God had left them there forever, He was faithful to bring them out. That on, the, on that night, that first Monday Thursday when He was arrested and His disciples scattered and thought, well, I guess that's it. We dropped the ball and it's all over. He was faithful. He is always faithful. Remember that. Set up some rocks. Make yourself a note. Write yourself a... a, a little letter, put it together, some kind of, uh, I don't know, arts and crafts, do something. They're probably making an Ebenezer right now up in Deborah's class. Set an alarm on your phone. Trust me, you will, you will live a better life if you constantly remind yourself who our God is and what he has done. If you take nothing else from the book of Esther, take that. Heavenly Father, we do appreciate these reminders that we need to be obligated to remember. That if we are not obligated, we will forget. That if we forget, we will not see you as faithful 
And we will begin to flag in our own faithfulness that we will not follow you so closely. We'll begin to try and take matters into our own hands. We'll begin to try and do everything by our own strength. And Lord, before long, we will fall away. We pray that you would help us to remind one another to tell each other the great story and preach the gospel to each other. Lord, that we would, as your people, live our lives in remembrance of what you've done for us and in anticipation of your coming again and the great celebration that will happen at that time that will make all the Purims of all of history look like nothing. Lord, we are thankful for the story of Esther and Mordecai, one that has no reference to your name, and yet which we see your fingerprints all the way through. We pray, Lord, that when we feel like you are not happening, uh, having any impact in our life, when you're not seeing our troubles, when you're not hearing our prayers, when you're not answering us, Lord, we would remember how faithful you are. In your holy name we pray. Amen.